Welcome to this week's Digest edition of the Herald Scotland. From Friday the 4th to Thursday the 10th of May 2018. Read by volunteers at Q Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. Coming up in part one. Scottish myth-making hides country's racism problem. Former Prestwick Airport boss Derek Banks claims he was sacked for whistleblowing. Supreme Court date set for cross-border Brexit fight. Labour fails to make breakthrough in local elections. Whitehall braces for a week of rage with flagship Brexit bill. Nobel Prize for Literature postponed amid sex abuse allegations. Bakery shop chain Greggs flags impact of low retail footfall on profits. Herald Entrepreneur. Edinburgh tech startup looks to revolutionise ID business. Susan Egglestaff. 25 years on from stabbing incident, Monica Salis's legacy remains. Scottish myth-making hides country's racism problem. An article by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 8th of May 2018. The idea that the Brexit vote showed Scotland was more open and tolerant than England is a misleading fantasy that masks the country's racism problem, MSPs are being warned. The authors of a new academic book looking at Scottish exceptionalism will present their findings to Holyrood's cross-party group on tackling Islamophobia tomorrow. No problem here, understanding racism in Scotland, says the Remain majority north of the border on Brexit, had given the exceptionalism myth a new lease of life. The vote is routinely cited as evidence Scotland is inherently more welcoming to migrants. However, the book warns against such self-flattery and says a better Scotland will only be built by confronting the evil of racism rather than pretending it does not exist. Editor and author Neil Davidson, a sociology lecturer at Glasgow University specialising in Scottish nationalism, said there were three reasons for the idea of less racism in Scotland. Anti-Irish prejudice was classed as sectarianism rather than racism, while a relatively small ethnic minority population in Scotland, 4%, mean the problem of racism is less conspicuous than elsewhere in the UK. Finally, the movements for devolution and independence have involved the idea that Scotland is culturally different from England and that part of this difference involves the Scots being more welcoming, tolerant and so on, he said. These are misleading fantasies which ignore the historical experience of Irish Catholics and the contemporary experience of Muslims, Roma and other BME, Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Groups. Fellow author Carol Young, Senior Policy Officer for the Coalition for Racial Equality and Rights, added, there's a perception that Scotland has less of a problem with racism than other areas of the UK, perhaps best summed up by the phrase, we're all Jock Thompson's bins. 
But regardless of popular opinion, the statistics suggest otherwise. Scottish Government figures show racial crime is the commonly reported hate crime. In 2016-17, there were 3,349 charges, the lowest total since 2003-04, but still 64 a week. Sexual orientation, aggravated crime, is now the second most common type of hate crime, with the charges increasing by 5% last year to 1,075. While the number of religiously aggravated charges was up 12% to 719. The book also highlights how BAME job applicants in Scotland's public sector are appointed far less frequently than their white counterparts. A recent report for the race relations think tank the Runnymede Trust also suggested that while Scotland's politicians were very positive about race, the rhetoric of equality outshone an all-too-uncomfortable reality. It said unemployment and underemployment remain critical issues for Scotland's ethnic minority communities where poverty falls disproportionately. Labour MSP Anna Sarwar, chair of the cross-party group, said Scotland is an open and diverse country but we should never allow our national pride to blind us to the fact that good and bad people live everywhere. In recent years we have seen the rise of Scottish exceptionalism, the idea that somehow just because we are Scottish and live in Scotland that we're less intolerant than our neighbours. It is not talking Scotland down to expose this myth. We cannot hope to eradicate everyday sexism and homophobia, everyday racism, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia unless we acknowledge that it exists in our workplaces, university and college campuses and playgrounds across the country. Our task is to make the unconscious bias conscious so that people can challenge themselves and then as a country we can aim to defeat prejudice in the long term. SNP MSP Ivan McKee, deputy convener of the group, said we have never shied away from the fact that Scotland is no more immune from Islamophobia and racism than anywhere else and that this serious problem must be tackled head on. We need to keep standing up against racism in all its forms across Scotland. Scottish Conservative Equalities spokeswoman Annie Wells said Scotland has just as many problems with racism as England does. Of course, in a bid to boost its separation cause, the SNP likes to pretend this isn't the case. But the truth is, that's a head-in-the-sand approach which breeds complacency and resentment. Labour Communities spokesperson Monica Lennon added, It is clear more needs to be done to tackle the many ways racism permeates Scottish society. We cannot rest on our laurels. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, Racism, Islamophobia and other forms of bigotry were completely unacceptable and ministers were determined to work with the cross-party group. We are resolved to do everything that it takes to ensure that Scotland is a place where there is zero tolerance of racism in any form. Scotland's diversity is our strength and we value and appreciate our relationships with our diverse faith communities. This article from the Herald Scotland News. 
on the 9th of May 2018. Former Prestwick Airport boss Derek Banks claims he was sacked for whistleblowing. This article by reporter Victoria Brennan. A former finance director at Prestwick Airport has claimed he was sacked for exposing allegations of fraud, bribery and collusion at the state-owned site. Derek Banks claims he told bosses about potential corruption within its procurement process and was dismissed soon after for blowing the whistle. The allegations, which were exposed by an employment tribunal hearing, include claims a third party acting on behalf of the airport kept its relationship with a bidder for runway resurfacing work a secret. It also emerged that the same contractor had sought bids for work in excess of the airport's requirements. Mr Banks, 50, from East Kilbride, has lodged claims with the tribunal for unfair dismissal and being treated unfairly for making a public interest disclosure. The hearing in Glasgow yesterday was told that Mr Banks submitted a report to airport bosses detailing his concerns in March this year and also asked for an audit to look at an impropriety. However, his audit request was refused and he was dismissed a month later. Airport officials claim she was dismissed because of poor performance, but Mr Banks' position is that there were no issues with his work before he spoke up on the allegations. The airport's non-executive chair, Andrew Miller, told the hearing that he received the report that agreed it included claims of potential fraud, bribery, collusion and conflicts of interest. Mr Banks' solicitor, Ingrid McGee, put it to Mr Miller that it showed that the third party, Halcyon Limited, had not been honest about its links to better breeding aggregates. Asked if the report concerned him, he said, yes, it did concern me. But we took the party out and rescored them, and they still would have won the contract, irrespective of what subsequently found out. He was also asked if it concerned him, and that he was asked by Halcyon was far higher than what he required. He replied, it did. Miss McGee asked, if you're willing to confirm of the allegations of fraud, collusion, bribery and conflicts of interest in respect to the runway resurfacing matter were confirmed, Mr Miller replied, conflicts of interest, yes, collusion, maybe, but fraud and bribery, no. The tribunal heard Mr Banks also made a number of claims involving misuse of the procurement process by the airport's operations director, Jules Mattioni, and allegations of expenses, misconduct by HR director Shonia Rafferty, who denied any wrongdoing on her part. However, Mr Miller argued that Mr Banks was sacked because of a lack of engagement within in the business and poor stewardship. He also said the airport had concerns about Mr Banks' involvement with a female member of staff. The tribunal heard that an email passed between Mr Miller and the airport's chief executive Stuart Adams said that Mr Banks was not a team player and had undermined his colleagues. It also stated that other directions had given him the nickname Devious Derek. In her closing submission in the hearing, which was to decide if Mr Banks should be allowed to keep his job until a decision made in the case, Miss McGee said that when her client raised concerns about Mr Rafferty and Mr Mattioni, Mr. Miller told him to back off Sonia and Jules.
She also claims he was told that a nail with its head showing will have it knocked off, and from that point Mr Banks felt his card was marked. The lawyer added that Halshian had not been open and transparent about the relationship with prospective tender, and that this had a financial benefit to Halshian and Breeden. She said the claimant held a reasonable belief that there was potential collusion, fraud and bravery being carried out by Halshian on behalf of the respondent. Miss McGee added, no other person was actively taking these issues within the respondents and the claimants ultimately paid the price for doing so with his career. Brian Campbell, the lawyer acting for the airport, met... Brian Campbell, the lawyer acting for the airport, said that many of the claims made by Mr Banks were not protected disclosures. He also claimed that the director was not the original source of the claims about the Halshin and Breeden contracting issue. Mr Campbell said there was no apparent credible motive why he would be dismissed for his part in the investigation. The lawyer added that Mr Banks was ultimately dismissed because of his perceived lack of engagement in his role and poor performance. A decision on whether or not Mr Banks will be allowed to keep his job in the interim will be issued at a later date by the employment judge Shona McLean. This article by reporter Victoria Brennan. Here at Q&A Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141-772-3976 or email us at information at qandreview.com. The Herald Scotland, on Thursday, the 10th of May 2018, News Section. Supreme Court date set for cross-border Brexit fight. This article is an exclusive by Scottish political editor Tom Gordon. It was the day that Mary Queen of Scots was deposed, ending a reign of almost 25 years. And now Nicola Sturgeon and Theresa May will be hoping that July the 24th is less ominous for modern leaders as their governments go to court over a Brexit power grab. The Supreme Court has provisionally set down July the 24th and 25th for the unprecedented legal clash, in which the UK government will effectively seek to kill off a bill passed by Holyrood. Although the timing coincides with Westminster going into summer recess, the event is expected to become a highly politicised part of the independence debate. The two governments will argue about the validity of a Holyrood bill designed to be an alternative to Westminster's main Brexit legislation, the EU Withdrawal Bill. MSPs passed the SNP-led Continuity Bill by 92 votes to 32 in March as a fallback in case the UK government failed to remove a power grab clause from the withdrawal bill. London later changed the bill enough to placate the Welsh government, but SNP ministers still oppose it as it gives Westminster the last word in 24 devolved areas after Brexit. If, as expected, MSPs withhold legislative consent for the withdrawal bill next week, the fate of the Holyrood alternative will be decided by the Supreme Court. Holyrood presiding officer Ken McIntosh warned in February that he believed the continuity bill was ultra vires as it strayed into EU law. However, MSPs rejected his advice, a first for devolution, after the Scottish Government's top law officer, Lord Advocate James Wolfe QC, assured them that it was competent. The UK Government last month referred the bill to the Supreme Court for a definitive ruling. 
The court then said the case would be heard by five or seven justices. A spokeswoman added, the case has been provisionally listed for the 24th and 25th of July 2018. Scottish Secretary David Mundell and Brexit Minister Robin Walker are due to give evidence on Brexit to Holyrood's Europe Committee today. If the Supreme Court rules the Holyrood Bill is incompetent, it would be deemed not law and void. That would be embarrassing for Ms Sturgeon, although Mrs May would still be left with the constitutional problem of Holyrood withholding its consent for the EU withdrawal bill. Ultimately, the UK government would be likely to impose its own Brexit law on Scotland. If the court backed the continuity bill, the UK could also impose its own Brexit law, but at a higher political price, as it would mean trampling on a Holyrood law. This exclusive article was by Scottish political editor Tom Gordon. This article from the Herald on Friday the 4th of May 2018. Politics. Labour fails to make breakthrough in local elections. This article is unattributed. Jeremy Corbyn failed to make a breakthrough in the English local elections as the Conservatives saw off Labour challenges in key battleground councils. In a night of mixed fortunes for the two major parties, Labour took Plymouth from the Conservatives but was unable to seize Tory crown jewel authorities in London where it had hoped to make gains. Hillingdon remained in Conservative hands and Mr Corbyn's party fell well short of the upsets some had predicted in Tory strongholds Wandsworth, Westminster and Kensington and Labour failed in its bid to take control of top target Barnet which was gained by Tories from no overall control. There were indications that the row over anti-Semitism may have hit its vote in an area of North London with a large Jewish community. Former Labour councillor Adam Langelbin, who lost his seat in West Hendon, tweeted, We must never have another election like this. No community group should have their vote dictated by their safety. That should shame us. The Conservatives gained control of councils in Peterborough, South End and Basildon, but saw a small swing in their favour outside the capital. But they lost Trafford, their flagship council in the northwest, to no overall control. Party chairman Brandon Lewis told Sky News, It's been a good night for us, we've done better than expected, and we have seen Labour, who thought they would be sweeping the board in London, thus far not gaining a single council in London. Eight years into a government, Labour was losing 4,000 councillors, whereas we at the moment are holding councils and in some areas making positive inroads. Theresa May's party appeared to have benefited from an almost total collapse in the UKIP vote, which saw the Eurosceptic party shed councillors across the country. The one point of light for UKIP was Derby, where the party held one seat and picked up another, unseating Labour's leader in the city. Former Deputy Chairwoman Suzanne Evans openly discussed the prospect of the party crumbling. Labour sources described the the results as solid, saying that the party had consolidated advances made at last year's general election, but it suffered from a failure to damp down expectations in a set of elections where its activists and members of the Corbyn-backing Momentum organisation put in massive efforts on the doorsteps. Labour London Mayor Sadiq Khan said last year there was no corner of the city where the party could not win and insisted they could challenge the Tories even in their crown jewels of Wandsworth and Barnet. 
and Shadow Chancellor John MacDonnell raised the prospect last month of the party securing a significant victory in Hillingdon. Carrie Simons, the Conservative Party's Director of Communications, said Labour threw the kitchen sink at Wandsworth, adding it was brilliant news that they had failed. Shadow Cabinet Minister Jonathan Ashworth acknowledged that Labour had a lot of work to do, but insisted it was making progress across the country, creating a basis we can build upon for the next general election. Mr Khan, speaking at the Wandsworth Count, told the Press Association... What I'd be disappointed by was if we didn't make progress across London in terms of the number of councillors. The two main parties both lost control of key councils outside the capital. Mr Corbyn's party, however, lost Nuneaton and Bedworth, an area that often indicates the colour of the government at general elections, as well as Derby, with both falling to no overall control. Elsewhere, Labour fell short of gaining control in areas like Worcester, Dudley and Walsall, where they had hoped to establish Middle England strongholds. The chairman of the 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbenchers, Sir Graham Brady, described the loss of Trafford to no overall control after 14 years as deeply disappointing. The Liberal Democrats gained control of the London borough of Richmond-upon-Thames, a heavily Remain voting area from the Conservatives. Conservative former party chairman Grant Shapps, who has been highly critical of Mrs May's leadership, said Number 10 and Tory headquarters had got their act together. He told BBC News, Four years ago I was looking at a Conservative vote of 30% in the polls, and today I expect Theresa May will be looking at significantly more than that. I imagine in the upper 30s, maybe nearly 40 Most councils counted votes overnight, but others will declare results during the day on Friday. Across England, more than 4,000 seats were contested in around 150 councils, including all 32 London boroughs, as well as every ward in Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds and Newcastle. Mayoral elections were held in Hackney, Lewisham, Newham, Tower Hamlets, Waterford and the Sheffield City region. Voters in some areas piloting controversial ID trials were reportedly unable to cast their ballot. This article is unattributed. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the national newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. Whitehall braces for a week of rage with flagship Brexit bill. An article by Michael Settle, UK political editor, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 8th of May 2018. Whitehall is bracing itself for a week of rage next week when the UK government is set to push ahead with its flagship Brexit bill without the consent of Holyrood. With the intergovernmental talks between London and Edinburgh continuing to be deadlocked, the EU withdrawal bill is due to be debated by MSPs and AMs a week today. And while the former are expected to reject the UK government's amendments, the latter are expected to accept them. 
The following day, peers will have their final debate at third reading before a ping-pong takes place between the Commons and the Lords. Ultimately, however, the elected chamber will have its way. Whitehall insiders are expecting a deal of heat to be generated at Holyrood next Tuesday when MSPs will debate the UK legislation. All bar the Conservatives believe it is a power grab. UK government ministers and officials are also expecting an angry response from Edinburgh once the bill completes its passage through the Lords the following day. Theresa May and her colleagues say they have bent over backwards to accommodate SNP concerns about the bill, but will push it through in the midst of Scottish opposition because they believe there has to be legal certainty to guarantee a smooth and orderly Brexit. However, next month, lawyers from both governments are due to battle out the constitutional arguments over whether or not the Continuity Bill, the Scottish Government's insurance policy in light of there being no agreement on the Whitehall Bill, is legally competent. UK government sources are confident the judges of the UK Supreme Court will find in Whitehall's favour. Yet if they do not, and the continuity bill proceeds to become law, and if, as is expected, the withdrawal bill also becomes law, then the matter will have to go back to the Supreme Court for it to rule on which piece of legislation takes precedence. This article from the Herald on Friday the 4th of May 2018. Politics Nobel Prize for Literature postponed amid sex abuse allegations. This article is unattributed. The Nobel Prize for Literature will not be awarded this year following sex abuse allegations at the Swedish Academy, organisers have announced. The Nobel Foundation said that the crisis in the Swedish Academy has adversely affected the Nobel Prize. Carol Henrik Helden, chairman of the board of the Nobel Foundation, said in a statement posted on Twitter, The Swedish Academy has decided to postpone the 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature with the intention of awarding it in 2019. He added, The crisis in the Swedish Academy has adversely affected the Nobel Prize. Their decision underscores the seriousness of the situation and will help safeguard the long-term reputation of the Nobel Prize. None of this impacts the awarding of the 2018 Nobel Prizes in other prize categories. The Nobel Foundation presumes that the Swedish Academy will now put all its efforts into the task of restoring its credibility as a prize-awarding institution and that the Academy will report the concrete actions that are undertaken. We also assume that all members of the Academy realise that both its extensive reform efforts and its future organisational structure must be characterised by greater openness towards the outside world. It will be the first time since wartime 1943 that the prestigious award is not handed out. The Interim Permanent Secretary of the Academy, Anders Olsen, said in a statement... We find it necessary to commit time to recovering public confidence in the Academy before the next laureate can be announced. This is out of respect for previous and future literature laureates, the Nobel Foundation and the general public. The decision was reached at a meeting in Stockholm with the 2018 prize to be given in 2019. 
the interim permanent secretary of the academy, Anders Olsen, said in a statement, The active members of the Swedish Academy are of course fully aware that the present crisis of confidence places high demands on a long-term and robust work for change. We find it necessary to commit time to recovering public confidence in the Academy before the next laureate can be announced. This, out of respect for previous and future literature laureates, the Nobel Foundation and the general public. The decision was reached at a meeting in Stockholm with the 2018 prize to be given in 2019. The Nobel Foundation, the body that manages the finances and administration of all the Nobel Prizes, said the crisis in the Academy had adversely affected the prize. Chairman of the board, Carl Henrik Hedlund, said, During these past several weeks, we have pursued a continuous dialogue with the Swedish Academy and we support Thursday's decision. Their decision underscores the seriousness of the situation and will help safeguard the long-term reputation of the Nobel Prize. None of this impacts the awarding of the 2018 prizes in other prize categories. The Nobel Foundation presumes that the Swedish Academy will now put all its efforts into the task of restoring its credibility as a prize-awarding institution and that the Academy will report the concrete actions that are undertaken. We also assume that all members of the Academy realise that both its extensive reform efforts and its future organisational restructure must be characterised by greater openness towards the outside world. In principle, the Nobel Prize shall be awarded every year, but decisions on Nobel Prizes have been postponed on a number of occasions during the history of the prizes. One of the circumstances that may justify an exception is when a situation in a prize-awarding institution arises that is so serious that a prize decision will not be perceived as credible. This article is unattributed. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Q and Review. Now, back to the main programme. This article from the Herald Scotland Business on the 10th of May 2018. Bakery shop chain Greggs flags impact of low retail footfall on profits. This article by Group Business Editor Ian McConnell. Shares in Greggs tumbled 15% yesterday, wiping nearly £200 million off the bakery shop's chain's stock market worth after the company warned of the impact of wheat footfall in retail centres on profits. Greggs, citing severe weather as well as poor footfall, highlighted a year-on-year drop in lake-for-lake transactions numbers during March and April. It said market data confirms weak customer footfall in retail locations, which has impacted demand for food on the go. The impact was especially significant in the weeks of severe weather, when many shops, including our own, could not be opened. The combination of these factors, along with our strong comparative performance in the same period of 2017, has made our challenging trading environment 
throughout March and April, averaging transaction values continued to grow, but we saw a reduction in like-for-like -like transaction numbers. Greggs noted sales in May had started more strongly relative to its experience during March and April. However, it added, given the uncertainties over market footfall, we are cautious in respect of the outlook for sales and the balance of the year. Taking into account trading conditions in the year to date, and our more cautious outlook, we currently believe that underlying profits for the year are likely to be at a similar level to last year. As stockbrokers moved to lower their profit forecasts, shares in Greggs fell by 192 pence to 1,075 pence, reducing the company's stock market worth by around £194 million. Greggs made underlying pre-tax profits of £81.8 million in the year to December 30, 2017, up from £80.3 million in the prior 12 months. Stockbroker Shore Capital downgraded its forecast of Greggs pre-tax profits for 2018 by about 7%, from £87.3 million to £81.3 million. Darren Shirley, consumer equity research analyst at Shore Capital, said, We view Greggs as a high-quality operator through one that is clearly not immune from consumer sentiment. We expect the shock to tread water at current levels. Greggs yesterday reported a 4.7% year-on-year rise in its total sales for the first 18 weeks of 2018 in company-managed stores. Sales were up by 1.3% year-on-year during this period. On a like-for-like -like basis, which strips out with impact for changes in retail space, in the first eight weeks of 2018, Greggs had achieved 3.2% growth in sales in company-managed stores on a like-for-like -like basis. Mike Van Dalken, Head of Research at Ascendo Markets, said that Greggs' message only adds to the grim flow of news from the UK High Street. Mr Van Dalken flagged weak consumer confidence and worries over interest rates while observing a rise in Benchmark borrowing costs to this week's Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee meeting was no longer expected by economists. He believed completion of a proposed combination of supermarket giants, Sainsbury and Asda, could increase price competition in the on-the-go food sector. Mr Van Dalken said consumer confidence was already waning ahead of Brexit and that was a potential rate hike no longer hurting retail zone footfall before including weather blue and to make matters worse and dent FY full year expectations. Note that price competition for on-the-go food could also step up a gear should a Sainsbury's Asda deal get the green light and the tie-up allow the pair to slash prices as suggested. This article by Group Business Editor Ian McConnell. Herald Entrepreneur, Edinburgh tech startup looks to revolutionise ID business. An article by Marianne Taylor, features writer and columnist, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 8th of May 2018. 
What's the best part of the UK to start and grow a business? According to Callum Murray, the answer is easy, Scotland. There's so much support out there and people really want to showcase startups, says the Edinburgh-based entrepreneur. Any young person out there with a good idea has a great chance of creating a successful business, even more so in Scotland than in London. The connectivity and ecosystems exist. All you have to do is reach out for help. The opportunities are there for the taking. And if anyone should know, it's the 33-year-old, already a veteran, who has experienced both the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Indeed, by the age of 23, Mr Murray, originally from Bowness, had already established, grown, almost lost, then rebuilt a painting and decorating company that employed 10 people at its peak. And that makes his current success with tech startup Amicus ID all the sweeter. The company launched its unique identity software in 2016 and works with an array of clients across the legal, financial services, property and recruitment sectors to collect, analyse and handle customer information, erasing the need for the physical checking of passports and utility bills. Customer data collection and retention is a massive responsibility for companies, especially with new data protection rules, explains the young CEO. Asking people to turn up with their passports and bank statements or submit them over email is very insecure. Our software removes that risk for firms and can be used on mobile devices. Over the last quarter, we've doubled business month on month and following demonstration to clients, we have a 90% conversion and 100% retention rate. A successful investment round last October allowed the award-winning firm to increase the team from 6 to 22, many of whom work remotely across the UK and Europe. And although they are concentrating on the UK market for now, Mr Murray has ambitious expansion plans. The focus is on getting things right at home, learning and improving our product, says the Stirling University business graduate. But there are clear global possibilities. EU-wide data legislation provides a significant opportunity and there's also a big potential market in the US. When the time is right, hopefully we'll expand. Employing the right staff, says Mr Murray, is key to the success of any business and he is keen to highlight the importance of diversity. We have such a very strong team which has a 50-50 gender balance, he adds, but it's also about diversity of thought, the fact that our engineers bring different expertise from whichever industry or location they come from. This constantly challenges our thinking and creates new ideas. Many are freelancers or contractors and some are working on projects of their own. We offer flexibility in order to get the right people and skills. The old office-based 9 to 5 isn't relevant to our model. Mr Murray also believes his early experiences as an entrepreneur which included almost losing his business when customers who owed him money went bust during the banking crisis, are fundamental to the success of Amicus, which is chaired by former Standard Life chief Sir Sandy Crombie. 
I suffered significant losses in my first business venture and I had people relying on me, he explains. That was tough. I had no option other than to start again. But I knew even then that you can't wait for someone else to fix things for you. You have to change things for yourself. And he is keen to encourage young people in particular to do just that by going it alone. Everyone can do this, regardless of background, circumstances or access to capital. I didn't have any of those things, he says. I started with £1,000 from the Prince's Trust. There's no rule book, no training manual. You just have to get out there and do it. Sometimes you'll fall down. I wouldn't be running this business now if I hadn't failed at the painting company. What matters is having resilience. Would you like to appear in the Herald Entrepreneur slot? If so, email marianne.taylor at heraldandtimes.co.uk The Herald Scotland Friday the 4th of May 2018 Sports Section Susan Egelstaff, 25 years on from stabbing incident, Monica Sellis's legacy remains. This article by sports columnist Susan Egelstaff. 25 years ago, one of the saddest and most shocking moments in sporting history occurred. This week marked the 25th anniversary of Monica Sellis being stabbed while on court by a fan. She was playing her quarter-final match at the Hamburg Open when a spectator came from the stands onto the court during the changeover and stabbed Sellis between her shoulder blades. At this point in her career, she was the star of the tennis scene. At the time of the attack, Yugoslavian-born Sellis was just 19 years old, had become the sport's youngest ever French Open champion and had already amassed nine Grand Slam titles. She was world number one, having usurped Steffi Graf and this was ultimately what triggered the attack on her in Hamburg. In the years prior to the stabbing, Sellis and Graf had engaged in some classic matches, including the final of that previous year's French Open final and the year's Australian Open final. Sellis won both, and the signs were that she was on track to rack up Grand Slam title after Grand Slam title. But a deranged Graf fan named Gunther Parcher decided that Sellis was blocking Graf's path to further major titles, and so decided the best course of action was to remove the obstacle. Physically, Sellis recovered relatively quickly from the attack, but the mental scars took far longer to heal. It was over two years before Sellis returned to competition, and in fact, she never fully recovered from the trauma of what happened. Sellis may have returned to tennis, but she never regained the level she had reached as a teenager. In the years after the stabbing, she added only one more Grand Slam title to her name, the 1996 Australian Open, although she did enough to re-enter the world's top ten. Celes continued battling on the tour until 2003 when she sustained a foot injury and although it was a number of years until she officially announced she was hanging up her racket, her last ever official match was at the 2003 French Open where she lost in the first round. It is of course impossible to know if Celes would have indeed gone on to accumulate considerably more Grand Slam titles had she not been stabbed but it seems unlikely she would not have surpassed the 10 with which she ultimately finished her career. 25 years on from that life-changing moment, Celis is not forgotten, but her impact on the women's game is perhaps underestimated. When Celis came on the scene, tennis had never seen anything like her. She left a number of legacies, some hugely positive, one not quite as helpful. She was the first player to not merely grunt when she hit a shot, but shriek. 
With every stroke, she was in full voice, and it seems likely that had Celeste not been quite so liberal with her grunts, we may not have had to endure the ear-piecing noises that came from, amongst a raft of others, Maria Sharapova these days. But the way Celeste played tennis revolutionised the game. Her double-handed ground strokes were unique amongst her peers, and few have tried to replicate her in that way since her retirement, with only 2013 Wimbledon champion Marion Bartoli displaying a similar double-handed style. But the way Celeste played changed tennis forever. Despite her youth, she was the first real attacking baseliner that the women's game had ever seen. Her style was a fascinating contrast to Graf's serve and volley tactics that had served the Germans so well, but with Celis able to take her opponent's time away as a result of her attacking stance, as well as being able to hit the court repeatedly, few opponents were able to cope. Serena Williams, as well as the raft of baseline sluggers that we now see dominating the rankings, were inspired in their playing style at least by Celis. Yet this is often forgotten as a result of her story being dominated by the stabbing incident. Williams is currently chasing Margaret Court for the all-time Grand Slam titles record, but if Celis hadn't been attacked, she could well have been right up there too. Unfortunately, we'll never know. This article was by sports columnist Susan Egelstaff. This is the end of part one. After a short break, we'll be coming back in part two with more great articles from the Evening Times. This is a message from the NFB UK, the National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom. What is NFBUK? The National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom, NFBUK, is a self-help organisation of blind, partially sighted and deafblind people helping each other to help ourselves. It's an independent, non-political charity that campaigns for greater rights, citizenship and independent living. How does NFBUK work? We have a network of branches around the country where members and supporters can meet locally. The branches keep our members in touch with their local community and represent their views to local and national authorities and society in general. We provide information for our members in Braille, large print, audio and electronic formats. We work with local and national organisations to improve the quality of life for all blind, partially sighted, deaf-blind people and those whose sight impairment is part of multi-disability. NFBUK campaigns to defend essential benefits and social care services and seeks wider provision of these services and equipment to help us lead independent lives. We have local branches around the country and are aiming to open new branches in more areas. What are the benefits of joining NFBUK? You meet other blind, partially sighted and deafblind people with an interest in peer support, campaigning and making a difference. Members decide and shape which issues and campaigns to focus on and you decide how you want to work on campaigns. It's free to join this year. You will benefit from our special offer of one year's free membership. You can receive regular updates and share information through newsletter, e-group and our audio magazine for members. Founded in 1947, we have played a leading role in Articles for the Blind postal concessions, the retention of different banknote sizes according to denomination and tactile street paving. Current Issues We are currently active in issues around shared spaces and the built environment, disabled students' allowance, social care and rehabilitation, and the NHS and accessible information standards. Join us. If you are blind, partially sighted or deafblind, become a full member. We welcome sighted people to join as associate members. Any donation you can make will assist us to further our campaigning. For more information, visit www.nfbuk.org. Contact us via post, 
NFB UK, Sir John Wilson House, 215 Kirkgate, Wakefield, West Yorkshire, WF1 1JG. That's Whiskey Foxtrot 1 1 Juliet Golf. Telephone us 01924 291 313 or email admin at nfbuk.org. Also on Twitter and Facebook at nfbuk. Now back to the main programme. This is part two, coming up. How the world reported Stephen Gerrard, minimum pricing and Scots independence march. No going back to the bad old days of silencing the press. Herald View. May needs to take action over rogue foreign secretary. Herald View. New approach needed on mental health. Rosemary Goring. Let's toast the Scots who won't take, don't know, for an answer. The Bridge. Is it time to call a halt on this tide of misogynist TV crime? Neil Cameron, a question for Sir Alex Ferguson that this hack will never forget. This this article from the Herald, Arts, on the 10th of May 2018. The Bridge... Is it time to call a halt on this tide of misogynist TV crime? This article by Alison Rowett. Tomorrow night on sofas across Scotland, plenty of perfectly nice folk will settle down with a glass of wine to watch a woman being stoned to death. They will hear the sickening thuds, see the blood oozing from her face, and observe the way her head atop a body buried upright in the dirt goes the way and that like a balloon on a stick. And when the episode is over, these same viewers will be counting the minutes till next Friday and another instalment of The Bridge, the Scandinavian crime drama that makes The Wire look like Juliet Bravo. This, the fourth and final series, is being heralded as, as the darkest ever, considering the first season began in 2011 with a woman sliced in two like a side of ham. Viewers should be afraid. Very afraid. Still, given the apparently insatiable appetite for such programmes, there seems no danger of audiences turning away in disgust, much to the dismay of those who believe the violence has gone too far. Television culture has made rape and the ritualistic murder of women an industry unto itself, and audiences are lapping it up, says the actress Dune Makachan. As Jermaine Greer pointed out in the Radio Times recently, the majority of those doing the lapping up are women. Female victimisation sells, wrote the author of the female Ewinch. What should disturb us is that it sells to women. Women do indeed outnumber men when it comes to buying crime fiction, but increasingly dominate crime writing too. Post-Harry Potter J.K. Rowling Found success again with war veteran turned private investigator Carmeron Strike. The Strike books have in turn become successful television dramas. On television in general, the trend is towards having women detectives in charge. Women might seem ideally placed, then to forge a revolution from within. 
while they do so, and the multi-channel area of crime destined to become ever more shocking just to get the viewer's attention. If a woman being stoned are considered prime time entertainment today, what might your daughter be watching 20 years from now? It was being offered the part as a detective that led Mac Chan to make a Radio 4 documentary, Body Count Rising, on this subject. The actress, best known of late for playing Chatty Cathy in the Scott sitcom Two Doors Down, was told the new show would be a total reworking of the old form. But on asking how many episodes involved violence against women, she was told four out of six. Mac Chan declined. Had the answer been different, Mac Chan could have joined the ranks of famous women detectives that run in a long line from Miss Marple to Sergeant Pepper, Anderson and Police Women, Cagney and Lacey, D.I. Jane Tennyson and Prime Suspect, D.I. Maggie Forbes and The Gentle Touch, and on the crime-fighting heroines of today led by Sarah Lund and The Killing, Saga Norin of The Bridge, the Sergeant Catherine Cowood of Happy Valley. So crowded are the ranks that it takes more than just being a woman to stand out. In Happy Valley, for example, Sergeant Cowood's daughter was a victim of crime. Sometimes the search for a unique selling point can be ludicrous. As in David Hare's recent BBC drama, Collateral, when it emerged that D.I. Kip Glapsby, Carrie Mulligan, had once been a pole vaulter, while the plot never called on her to demonstrate the skill, at least the detail stuck in the mind. Sagan Orin's USP and her Asperger's, although no one ever refers to it as such, according to Sophia Helen portrayed of the character, this puts Saga in a certain distance from the horrors she witnesses. Perhaps this detachment is why she is able to stomach scenes of mutilation that leave her male colleagues retching. In appearance, Saga is very much the new model European detective. No D.I. Jane Tennyson business suits for her. No cashmere sweaters like Christine Cagney. Saga wears leather trousers above her boots and a coat with huge pockets to avoid the need for anything so girly as a handbag. When she pulls a double shift and needs to change, she whips a t-shirt off in the middle of the office and fetches a spare from the desk drawer. Not all women detectives keep things as real. BBC drama The Fall has been attacked for glamorising violence against women with its movie standard production values and its movie star central characters. Detective Superintendent Stella Gibson, Gillian Anderson, the serial killer, Paul Spector, played by Jamie Dornan of Fifty Shades fame, its creator, Alan Cubitt, has said his aim was to empower women, but critics have disagreed. Journalists of New Statesman, TV critic Richard Cook, has said the programme's veil of classiness should not be allowed to obscure a drama that is strikingly nasty. The backlash against sexualised violence has led to the launch of a new literary competition and £2,000 staunch book prize to be awarded November the 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, 
will go to a thriller in which no woman is beaten, stalked, sexually exploited, raped or murdered. The competition's founder is the writer Bridget Wallace. We launched the staunch book prize because we felt that there is just such an overload of violence towards women in fiction, when women in the real world are fighting sexual abuse and violence or being murdered because they're women. The casual and endless depiction of women as victims sits uneasily alongside their fight. For some, writing about violence against women is a way to expose it. Val McDermott, the best-selling award-winning crime novelist, says, As long as men commit appalling acts of misogyny and violence against women, I will write about it so that it does not go unnoticed. Change is happening. The BBC Scotland series Shetland, for example, was widely praised for the way it handled the rape of Detective Sergeant Alison McIntosh. Tosh. There was no rape scene, no flashback. Instead, everything the viewer needed to know about the horror was evident in the demeanour of Tosh and her shocked colleagues. If crime dramas have tipped into exploitation, perhaps the bad old ways will only disappear when more women occupy the real seats of power in television as commissioning editors and directors. A few Val McDermott types and Dennis Manas are fellow Scots crime writing Doiny calling the shots and what gets made and how would soon sort the good guys from the bad. The increasing number of women TV critics have a part to play too. Whatever the answer for Maka-chan, a staunch prize judge, putting a stop to sexualised violence on television cannot happen quickly enough. Thirty years ago, ethnic minorities used to be the butt of the jokes, she argued. In Body Count Rising, then a new wave of comedy came and washed away the old prejudices and it was better, fresher, more intelligent. Perhaps, just perhaps, we've reached zero tolerance of these overused images and can move on from stories of brutalised women as entertainment fodder. Over to you, Saga. The Bridge, BBC Two, 9pm. Body Count Rising is still available on BBC iPlayer Radio. Staunchbookprize.com Top Women Techs Cagney and Lacey, Job, NYPD Detectives, Active 1982-88 and 1994-96 Description Cagney, Sharon Glace, was Sex in the City single, while Lacey, Time Daily, had Hobby Harvey. USP Like Ginger Rogers, as good as their male counterparts, and they did it all in heels. Job Paris Police Captain Laura Berthod Active 2005 to today Description Laura Caroline Prost will go to extreme lengths to crack a case, working right up to the moment she went into labour. USP One of the Boys Jane Tennyson Job Detective Superintendent MET, active 1991-2006. Description. A killer could run from Tennyson, Helen Mirren, but once in the interview room, he was a goner. USP. Demanded to be called Governor rather than Ma'am, still the Queen of Women Techs.
Job, Chicago PI, active 1982 to today. Description Sarah Pretzky's creation is a feminist hero, principled, resourceful and a dog lover. USP The books are best sellers, but moved to the big screen with Karen Turner as VI was a flop. Catherine Calwood Job, Sergeant Yorkshire Active 2014 to today. Description, bringing up her grandson after she lost her daughter, Catherine does not have her troubles to seek. USP, Sally Wainwright's creation is beloved by BAFTA judges and viewers alike. This article by Alison Routh. Here at Q&A Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at The Herald Scotland, on Thursday the 10th of May 2018. Opinion section. No going back to the bad old days of silencing the press. This article by Alison Rowett. Hugh Grant is that rare being, an actor who doesn't mind resting. He relishes his time away from the movie cameras and press dictaphones. Alas, he's not been enjoying much downtime lately. With a universally lauded performance as a delicious old ham in Paddington 2 and his appearance in the forthcoming BBC drama A Very English Scandal, Mr Grant is toastier property now than he has been for many a year. In A Very English Scandal, he plays Jeremy Thorpe, the former leader of the Liberal Party who stood trial for conspiracy to murder his alleged lover, Norman Scott. Mr Thorpe and three others were acquitted. From the trailers, it looks set to be a riveting watch, with Scott's appearance in the witness box at the Old Bailey a highlight. I will talk, proclaims Ben Wishaw, playing Scott. I will be heard and I will be seen. Noble sentiments, but how often will their like be heard in future if Mr Grant ever succeeds in that other role he savours, that of campaigner for stricter press regulation? It was in his capacity as director of the lobby group Hacked Off that he had a busy day in Parliament this week, his aim to draw up support for curbs on the press. One proposed amendment to the Data Protection Bill, debated yesterday, would have resulted in newspapers being forced to pay all the legal costs of actions against them, even if they won the cases, unless they'd signed up to a state regulator. Another amendment, this one tabled by former Labour leader Ed Miliband, would have ushered in a new Levison inquiry into press standards. The former amendment was dropped, while the latter was defeated 304 votes to 295. Given the closeness of the vote on Levison, this will likely not be the last word on the subject for a while, and more's the pity. Rarely has Westminster seemed such a bubble as yesterday afternoon. It seems incredible that at a time when the demands on politicians have never been greater, that MPs and peers should be once again devoting time to this subject. Brexit, Iran, Syria, the never-ending crisis in the NHS, child poverty increasing, potholes, you name it. It's more of pressing concern to the public than yet more gazing at the navel of press regulation. No matter that seven years have passed since David Cameron set up Levison. Forget that £50 million has been spent already. Ignore the fact that arrests and prosecutions have taken place. Shun the reality that post-Levison reforms, including the setting up of a new independent regulator, are now bedded in and working well. 
let's all return instead to the task that certain individuals have set for themselves. Chief among these high-profile campaigners for more regulation are Mr Grant, Tom Watson, the Labour's deputy leader, and ex-motor racing chief Max Mosley, who's donated £540,000 towards the running of Mr Watson's office. When it comes to Mr Grant and Mr Mosley, a cynic might ask, Mrs Merton style, what is it about a free press that first attracted the scandal-hit actor and ex-racing boss to the notion of neutering it? But this isn't about the past. Those campaigning for more regulation insist they are acting for the weak against the strong now and in the future. Now, at this point in any discussion of the press, it's customary for a journalist to fire up the Elgar and start waxing lyrical about ancient freedoms, the fight against tyranny and their part in it. There are few sites more comical than the media getting on its high horse. We put words together for a living. We take pictures. We produce newspapers. We don't cure the sick, teach the young, mend the roads, or anything else of obvious practical use. But that said, and for all the trade's flaws, when it comes to serving the public, I would put more trust in journalism than in most other professions. Messrs Grant and Mosley like to accuse the press of wallowing in the past, of not fitting in with modern demands for openness and accountability. But it is they who are hopelessly out of touch with the times and the industry they seek to regulate. Post-Levison there's been a revolution in the media, with readers just as likely to get their news from Facebook as from a newspaper. If campaigners want to overhaul institutions that are slow to act on complaints, if they act at all, why don't they take on the social media giants? Or is their legal firepower too intimidating? Between the establishment of the Independent Press Standards Organisation and the arrival of social media, newspapers have never been so open to scrutiny and accountable for their actions. If serious wrongdoing occurs, the existing law is able to deal with it. Phone hacking was and is a criminal offence and was dealt with as such. Far from suffering from a lack of oversight, the UK media is one of the most heavily regulated in the world. By further hemming in the press, campaigners make it less likely that causes and cases will be taken up and wrongdoing exposed. Moreover, those who complain that the media is being allowed to run amok have clearly never been in any newspaper office when a complaint's been received. It's a very serious matter. Getting something wrong or breaking the industry's code of conduct can be grounds for dismissal. Without wishing to be pompous about it, there's the judgement of peers to be reckoned with too. It's not like decades ago when newsrooms were packed with staff. There's no hiding place for chancers and papers today. On the subject of the strong against the weak, it should be remembered that Norman Scott had gone to the press with complaints before that he was being silenced, but no one was prepared to take on Mr Thorpe and his powerful friends. That only ceased when the local press picked up the story and Private Eye and the Sunday Express followed. We don't want to go back to the time when chaps of a certain order took care of business with a quiet word here and there, a time when the press knew its place and did what it was told. Those days have gone, and good riddance. This article is by Alison Rowett. The Herald, Scotland, Wednesday, May the 9th, 2018. Opinion. Herald View. May needs to take action over a rogue foreign secretary. There are many reasons for not envying Theresa May, and having Boris Johnson in her cabinet must be prime among them. Apart from all the faux pas and foppishness, the foreign secretary is now effectively dictating policy on Brexit to the prime minister. Yesterday, Mr Johnson went so far as to say Mrs May's post-Brexit trade policy was crazy, and yet, far from firing him, she stands by him. These are certainly crazy times at the heart of the UK government. They make one yearn for saner times with clearly established rules and comforting constitutional niceties such as the small but important matter of cabinet responsibility. Former Tory minister Dominic Grieve offered this lesson to Mr Johnson yesterday. 
The discussions within government on any given matter are confidential until the time is reached when the government has a collective position. And if you don't like the collective decision at that time, then you have to resign. So if Mrs May does go crazy and manages to persuade her cabinet to back plans for a customs partnership, then Mr Johnson will have to put his money where his mouth is. That mouth is currently a megaphone for the mob demanding full Brexit. Mr Johnson wants to be the darling populist holding Mrs May's elegantly shod feet to the fire, in which entertainment endeavour he is backed by Jacob Rees-Mogg, who tweeted, Boris hits the nail in the head with a plasticine hammer, perhaps. But this is a serious matter for Mrs May. Fudge Brexit and Mr Johnson's nail will be the final one in her political coffin, according to the more temperamental newspapers in London. We might feel sorry for her being damned if she doesn't, ditching the customs partnership and watching the economy collapse, and damned if she does, going for a soft Brexit and watching her cabinet eat itself. However, allowing oneself to be backed into that position is a classic symptom of bad leadership. It speaks of a lack of strategy, which is perhaps hardly surprising after Mrs May inherited a Brexit policy on a post-it note containing the message, good luck with that. Mrs May's luck is running out. She presides over a cabinet wherein a loose cannon is calling the shots. Mr Johnson parrots the Brexiteer slogan of taking back control, but with his every utterance he causes Mrs May to lose control. She looks adrift, and if she wants to convince the nation that she can still steer a course through the choppy seas of Brexit, a good starting point would be to take action against the Foreign Secretary, who seems intent on torpedoing her. This article was unattributed. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the evening times and herald scotland newspapers weekly digests of the national newspaper and weekly full readings of inside soap magazine now back to the main program this article from the herald scotland opinion on the 10th of may 2018 herald view new approach needed on mental health this article by Herald View. We know already, and have known for some time, that mental health services for young people in Scotland are under terrible strain. Children, teenagers and young adults often struggle to access the treatment they need. They are also sometimes judged not ill enough to receive support, meaning they have to deteriorate further before they get help. It is a disturbing situation, especially in a country where child and adolescent mental health is supposed to be one of the government's priorities. Now the need for urgent action to address the situation has been underlined by an important and disturbing piece of research. According to the study led by Glasgow University, 11.3% of young people report having attempted suicide and 16.2% report self-harm at some stage in their lives. This is a pretty extraordinary figure by any measure, one in nine young adults in Scotland say they have tried to kill themselves. What makes the situation worse is that one in nine with serious mental health issues are likely to experience problems in trying to get help and support. We know that around 20% of people referred to Scotland's Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, CAMS, are rejected. We also know young people are also treated on unsuitable adult wards. Mental health services in Scotland are facing the strain and young people are struggling as a result. 
Some of the solution is obvious. More funding so CAMS can do more. But there also has to be much greater emphasis on developing alternatives to CAMS so the symptoms of mental health can be spotted as early as possible. Instead of waiting for difficult circumstances to become a crisis, early intervention can help young people avoid a worsening of their situation. What this means in practice is that there has to be a source of help, support and advice in every school in Scotland. Such a service is already up and running in Wales, and teachers there report that an improvement in pupils' behaviour the situation in Scotland is much patchier. According to official government policy, a named mental health worker should be available in every school, but in reality there is a confusion about what health boards and schools are supposed to be doing, and some schools seem to provide no help under the policy at all. All of this has to change, so the heart of our policy on mental health is prevention and early intervention as well as cure, properly funded, the figures contained in the new research are stark, but perhaps they will also act as a spur at the last to change. The Scottish Government does have a suicide prevention plan, but it lacks targets, timescales and any indication of whether new resources will be available. Perhaps it should have three words printed on its front page. Prevention, prevention, prevention. This article from the Herald View. Article from Herald Scotland, 8th of May 2018. Opinion. How the world reported Stephen Gerrard, Minimum Pricing and Scots Independence March. As Others See Us, by David Leask. He was the pin-up of Scotland's independence movement and he is back. In the years leading up to the big vote in September 2014, the world's news media repeatedly used the same single image. It was of a young, fair-haired man in a kilt screaming into a camera. He had saltairs clutched in both of his hands and a huge big blue yes and another Scottish flag painted onto his bare chest. The photograph re-emerged this weekend as tens of thousands of yeses marched through Glasgow. Some picture editors, it seems, prefer old stock images with a distinct Braveheart vibe to the less glamorous, or certainly more clothed, reality of Scott Saturday's protest. But the big march got a fair bit of international press coverage this weekend. Why? Well, because of all the kilts and bagpipes and drums and oh-so-many St Andrew's crosses. A big flaggy protest may be atypical for Scotland, but it was also stereotypical for newspapers and TV stations. This last week has been a big week for Scotland in global news media with three major stories, all ticked a box for Scottish cliché. First came the long-expected minimum unit price for alcohol. It inspired some predictable headlines in countries where Scotland is best known for our national tipple. Scots will no longer be able to drink cheap whisky, declares Moscow's Izvestia. Russia has had minimum pricing for alcohol for some time, per bottle rather than per unit. So the world's first minimum pricing spin from the Scottish government wasn't much of a seller for Izvestia. The logic is clear. Scots? They're careful with money, but like a drink. So missing out on cheap whisky is the perfect headline. 
El Mundo in Madrid went down the same path. Dry law in the land where whiskey was born was its headline on a rather thoughtful piece which combined an interview with a toothless 37-year-old alcoholic outside a Colton pub with observations on how far its crime had fallen. Glasgow boasts of being one of the most vibrant cities in the UK despite its dark side, its correspondent reported. That's the thing with stereotypes. Journalists love them. But what they really love about them is the chance to undermine them. And so it was with banning cheap whisky. By the end of last week, news from Scotland had provoked debates across the EU. The Berlin correspondent of Turin's La Stampa reported that German experts were looking at Scotland with envy. They, of course, worry about cheap beer, not cheap whisky. He cited one specialist, Raphael Gassmann, saying beer, but also wine and other alcoholic drinks, today represents the cheapest drugs. Scotland was back in the headlines right after minimum pricing with the announcement of Stephen Gerrard as the new manager of Rangers. Admittedly, much of that coverage focused on the man, not the club or country, and reflected huge interest in the English Premiership and UEFA Champions League. However, Many news reports did not feel the need in their headlines to explain what Rangers was or where it was from, suggesting the Scottish game has some brand recognition. For years, Scots may have had little to shout about on the terraces, but one of the few reasons foreigners would have even heard of Scotland is that unlike most non-sovereign states, it has its own national football team and league. And so Brazilian independent TV station Globo this weekend found itself explaining how Scotland's third-place team had three games less to challenge Aberdeen for second place. Il Sole Viente Quattro Ore in Milan stressed that Gerard had turned down a side in England's third tier. It said, in Scotland, Gerard will have his first chance to put himself in front of a major European audience as a trainer. There was plenty of red, white and blue on display when Gerard was announced by Rangers. There was not much of that particular colour combination on Saturday when 35,000 people rallied for independence in Glasgow. But there were enough Union Jacks to catch the eyes of journalists and photographers always eager for a protest to have a little bit more than a mere gathering of people who agree with each other. Paris magazine L'Espresse and newspaper Liberation ran the same wire agency copy, speaking of the counter-demonstrations by unionists waving the British flag. Scotland's constitutional politics can be mystifying for foreign reporters. However, rivals brandishing different flags and banners? Now that is easy to get. Banal, flaggy nationalism can be found everywhere, after all. Yet even here, sharp-eyed correspondents, including those in Liberation and L'Espresse, spotted something... Different. Estelades, the pro-Indy flags of Spain's breakaway nation of Catalonia. Estelades tinge an independence rally in Scotland, declared El Nacional in Barcelona. The Catalan independence movement was well represented at the march, where there were dozens of messages of solidarity with the situation endured by Catalonia, its correspondent said, before revealing yellow ribbons, the symbol of protest against Spain's crackdown, had been for sale. Here in Scotland, George Caravan, a former SNP MP and a colonist for the National, the Herald's sister paper, 
described a Catalan effect, where Scottish nationalists were trying to emulate the mass rallies of pro-independence groups in Catalonia. He has a point. Catalans have now created an expectation for what the world media expects an independence movement to look like. Clichés are not just for nations. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Q and Review. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland, Friday, May the 4th, Opinion Section. Rosemary Goring, let's toast the Scots who won't take, don't know, for an answer. This article by literary editor and columnist Rosemary Goring. It took me a long time to realise that we are not all fundamentally the same. Forget what religious gurus or social scientists or the far left try to make you believe. Some of us are, if not better than others, then certainly a lot brighter. For example, since David Attenborough's Blue Planet series, millions of us have been eyeing the plastic in our grocery baskets and our waste bins with loathing. We've started buying bananas unwrapped and spring bulbs loose like old-fashioned sweets from jars. We proffer long-life mugs for the barista to fill and clutch them self-consciously as we head to the office, aping Michael Gove in our conspicuous non-consumption. Needless to say, while all of these are worthwhile measures, our best endeavours are but a drop in an ocean awash with plastic. Which is why certain individuals make you stand back in awe. One such is James Longcroft. A couple of years ago, the Durham University graduate set up a not-for-profit bottled water company, Choose Water, to raise money for clean water from Africa. And then came the news that plastic water bottles are destroying the ocean and its wildlife. Instead of ignoring a problem that would cause an ethical headache for his venture, he stopped selling water in plastic bottles and started working on finding an answer. Longcroft's waterproof paper-based bottle biodegrades in three weeks. The metal cap takes a year. It costs around five pence more than a traditional plastic bottle, which might sound like a lot, but it's peanuts when it comes to protecting the environment. And what's more, he devised it in his Edinburgh flat. He was not in a lab surrounded by chemists, but making a mess of the place that he and his partner and children call home. Thankfully, he now has a property in Fife, from which he hopes to launch his invention commercially. Longcroft's eco-bottle is what you might call a world solution to a world problem. First he heard about the effects of plastic pollution, then he dreamt up a possible fix – Simple, you might say, and for some people, relatively speaking, it is. This young entrepreneur joins a long and noble heritage of British inventors whose unfettered imaginations have dramatically changed the world. It's from Scotland, too, that some of the finest ideas have come, hence American historian Arthur Herman's flattering book How the Scots Invented the Modern World. Great ideas become international the moment that they succeed, but for such a small country we've had more than our fair share of 100-watt minds whose innovations have transformed the way we live. Whether it's John Logie Baird and the television, Alexander Graham Bell and the telephone, or Ian Wilmot's team and Dolly the Sheep, Scots have produced countless revolutionary ways of plugging gaps in our knowledge and technology. Our never-ending, rainy, church-going Sundays possibly played a part, 
but perhaps it has more to do with an education system that insisted you think for yourself and wouldn't take I don't know for an answer. Of course, with the majority of folk, no amount of tutelage could produce a single original scientific thought. Faced with a meadow to mow, some of us would never have conceived of the iron ploughshare or the rotary blade for cutting grass. We'd have let it flower and sat back to enjoy the scene while our stomachs rumbled. Nor do inventors seem to have just the one eureka moment. They're not like those novelists who only have one book in them, or for teachers whose enthusiasm dies after the first school year. For true inventors, ideas seem to arrive like buses, in convoys. Not all, of course, work. Logie Baird's hated sock, which should have been a runaway success in these climbs, was an abject failure, thanks to partially being made from paper. It wouldn't survive the wash. Jam-making was another of his brainwaves, which also came to nothing. Who at this point would have thought that he would be the father of the entertainment history, or indeed that Bell's telephone would be the basis from which our own hyper-fast connectivity springs, reshaping life as we knew it when we were young? That's not to pile pressure on James Longcroft and those like him. If his bottle makes even a tiny dent in the mountain of plastic waste that is daily flushed out to sea, he will have earned his place in history, and in our hearts. It is rather to reflect that cometh the hour, cometh the man, or indeed the woman. Those who take a miserable view of the future do so without factoring into picture the sort of people whose minds start to fizz under pressure. Now what we need is a solution to traffic and obesity, dementia, international discord and poverty and illness in developing countries. A daunting wish list? Sure. Yet you can be confident that some of the brightest sparks on the planet are already addressing it. Human nature cannot be changed overnight, but as every good inventor knows, the way that we behave can. This article was by columnist and literary editor Rosemary Goring. The Herald Scotland. Sports section. Wednesday 9th of May 2018. Neil Cameron, a question for Sir Alex Ferguson that this hack will never forget. This article is by Neil Cameron. In the history of difficult questions, it was far more middle of the road than Midlothian. It was May 2001. Manchester United were in Glasgow for Tom Boyd's testimonial at Celtic Park. Sir Alex Ferguson, we had been told, would give the Scottish hacks a few minutes of his time after the game, which he certainly didn't always do. I had never been in the same room as the man before. The same could be said about most, if not all, of my immediate peers. Ferguson was long gone from Aberdeen by the time we had stabilisers taken off our notebooks. There would be no originality award for my light interrogation of this living legend, but it had to be asked, and most importantly, it might just get the lads and I an easy back page, which are the best kind. That day began with the sad news that Bobby Murdoch had died, the first of the Lisbon Lions to pass, and therefore it was timely that Fergie, a friend and peer of this wonderful footballer whose loss had dominated the night, was in town. Indeed, that was my question. Sir Alex, obviously tonight has been overshadowed by the death of Bobby Murdoch. Can I ask you what your memories are of him as a player and a man? Easy. He'll love that. Fergie, as I would surely be able to call him soon, was in a good mood, laughing and joking with the likes of Roger Bailey and Alan Davidson, who had known him for years and so would be happy to take a question from a young buck. And no, that's not rhyming slang. I cleared my throat, waited for a pause in the banter and began with, Sir Alex... Have you ever watched The Rumble in the Jungle? The look Muhammad Ali gives George Foreman as they touch gloves was one of hate, disrespect and utter disdain. That's what Fergie's stare said to me, and I am no George Foreman. The power of speech left me. Words, not my greatest strength, were gone. Utterly gone. I managed a few vowels for a bit as the walls closed in, and my cheeks grew red. 
not helped, it must be said, by the giggles of some of my colleagues and so-called friends. After an ice age, the question somehow stumbled out. And to be fair, Sir Alex's answer was superb. He spoke of Murdoch being the heartbeat of the team and said something along the lines of Celtic's talisman of 1967 as being priceless. So we got a back page, and once my heart started again and my breath returned from its holidays, I was proud that I got the line for once, and best of all, was not in need of a new pair of trousers, although it was a close thing. That's it. That's my Fergie story. It's hardly Ulysses, but if I wrote down what came out of my mouth that night, it would have been as bewildering as anything Mr Joyce came up with. Marcello Lippi is the only other person who came close to possessing such chief presence in my years in the job. Both living legends and, in the bloke from Govan's case, I am very happy to say that is still the case. Ferguson is 67 and has suffered with health problems down the years, and yet people like him don't get ill. They certainly don't die. And over the weekend, it did seem that this icon of Scottish life, and that's what he was, was on his way out after undergoing emergency surgery following a brain hemorrhage. Newspapers were preparing for the worst. Discussions were taking place on desks about whether there were enough hands on decks to produce a 20-page special. Ach, we should have known. He's way too stubborn to go before his time. Ferguson remains in hospital, but yesterday news emerged that he was awake and talking. Even those who would never claim to be his biggest fan breathed a sigh of relief. If it is possible to be a genius as a football manager, then Sir Alex Ferguson is Beethoven, William Shakespeare and Steven Spielberg rolled into one, with a sprinkling of Rabbi Burns. Surely it's time his own city commissioned a statue of one of Glasgow's greatest sons. A street named after him, a stand at Hamden, anything really, before it's too late. Sir Alex is thankfully still with us, so perhaps it's time for his own people to get together and show just how much he means to us all. Just get someone else to ask him a question. Alas, it is now too late to pay such a tribute to Ron Scott, one of Scottish newspapers' great characters. And another thing. Alas, it is now too late to pay such a tribute to Ron Scott, one of Scottish newspapers' great characters. Big Ron passed away on Saturday a few hours after the news of Sir Alex's emergency surgery and his loss will be deeply felt. Indeed, Fergie sent Ron a message on his retirement. A Sunday Post legend and proud son of Dundee, Ron was one I expected to see me out, despite him having 25 years on me. I know he wasn't sure of the cut of my jib until a tense trip to Lisbon forced me to order a large G&T after some work problems. I like your style, said Ron with great approval. I was chuffed to bits. This article by sports correspondent Neil Cameron. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jay Kidd. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.